Welcome to the Master Retention Podcast presented by UserWise, the live ops engine for your game, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. My name is Mike, and I work on the marketing team. This week, Tom speaks with Angus Lovett, CEO at Ramp, about optimizing your marketing budget, moving your game to the soft launch phase, and all the homework that should be done before making your marketing plans. We hope you enjoy. Everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, your host and co-founder of UserWise. Uh, today, we actually have another entrepreneur on with us today, um, Angus uh, Lovett, um, who comes to us from Ramp Growth, um, previously at King. Lots of lots of fun stuff to dive into today. Um, but you know, Angus, before I really dive in, I always like to ask people, you know, like, what's your story like? How did you get into games and then ultimately, you know, where you're at today? Well, you know, I think this is a bit of a long one. So, so strap, <laughs> strap yourself in. So I'm a, I'm a big gamer myself, by the way, um, mostly AAA type type stuff. I know there's a lot of um, uh, podcast focuses a lot on, on free to play. Um, I don't play a lot of free to play. And the reason for that is. Um, isn't so much a, an objection to free-to-play uh, itself. Obviously, that's the, my work and what I do. It's, it's almost like when I, when I play, I play for escapism. And uh, I, don't, I don't want the magic removed by trying to second-guess what the developer is, is doing as they're putting me through that, through that loop. Uh, so I tend not to play a lot of, lot of free-to-play. Free and the second reason is also part of what I do is... Uh, forecasting uh, and making sure that marketing budget is, is spent efficiently. And I find um, actually not playing the titles in some ways removes me from, uh, from that because and, uh, and lets me be a little bit more objective about uh, <laughs> how that money is being spent, not overspent on a particular title because I, I happen to like it uh, and these sort of things. So that step removal actually, actually I think helps me a little bit in my career. Uh, but but yeah, we go. So so the quite back to the question. The um, uh, the question was uh, how did I get into gaming? So my background is on uh, performance marketing prim- primarily. I worked at Starcom MediaVest, which is part of the publicist group. That's how I got my start uh, in, in life. Uh, I got a call about two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, um, from the CEO of King, Ricardo Zaccone, uh, and he said. Uh, Hey, I've heard of what you, what you've done at, at, at the agency. I want you to come over here and, and join us at King. Uh, we have this cash gaming business or this skill based gaming uh, business. If you're not familiar with that, it's skill based gaming. Is you know, I put in a dollar, you put in a dollar, we play each other in a in a PvP type situation. The winner takes uh, the the two dollars minus the house rank of thirty odd percent, much higher than gambling. And uh, and therefore, um, uh, and that was the, that was effectively the business model. So like um, skills before skills. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, my initial reaction was, I think I turned him down about two or three times, like literally to the point of hanging up on the guy um, um, on on the way through, and, and the recruiter, not 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 just him. Um, but they were very very uh, persistent, and they uh, got me to agree to this meeting. So. I, I go to this, uh, go to their offices coming from a big agency where I've got clients like Capital One and, 
and, and you know, I'm thinking I'm pretty hot shit working on these, these yeah. big hands and, and, and um, you know, I don't want to work for your little skill-based cash gaming slash gambling business. That doesn't sound like it's for me. But I, I took the meeting and it was, I was really taken with, with, with this, this guy. Um, it was just so inspiring and odd at the same time. So coming from a, a place which is a very structured, I, I walk into this, this office and there's Riccardo Zaccone, this Italian guy, very imposing figure, sitting behind a, a, quite a large desk, quite removed. So it's almost like a godfather type situation that, that I'm walk, walking into. Um, and, uh, you know, tells me a, a little bit about the business, tells me about the history and the founders and said, okay, so when you fly to Sweden tomorrow to meet the rest of the founders, uh, this is what I want you to do. This is a, and I'm like, Ricardo, I'm not flying to Sweden. We're in, the, we're in London, by the way. <laughs> I'm yeah. flying to Sweden tomorrow. I've got a job. I've got like stuff I have to take care of. Da, da, da. And he's like, oh, 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 I'm very, very, very sorry. Um, but, you know, that was very uh, presumptuous and rude of me. How about the next day? <laughs> so <he's> like, <laughs> <laughs> just to give you an idea of, of what this like, and I'm like, okay, fine. And I'll work it out. Um, so I go get my tickets. And he goes, I'll swim by the office before, before, before you go um, get on your flight. So I, I go back into the office um, and he's here. And he, he, the first thing he does, he picks up this duffel bag, huge, huge ass duffel bags, puts it at the side of the desk and, 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 and pushes it forward towards me, right? And then sits back down behind the desk. Then he continues talking about the founders and history and <laughs> these other things, but I'm not listening to what he's saying. Because all I'm thinking is, what, what's in, in the duffel bag? I'm not taking your drugs. I'm not being your mule, you mafioso type. I'm not taking them to Sweden, right? And so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like totally distracted um, um, by this situation. And then he stops and then he looks at me and goes, you want to know what's in the bag, don't you? And I was like, yes, I want to know in the bag. He grabs this bag, he picks it up, he puts it on the desk and zip, zips it open, right? Inside, there's 30 iPad uh, 3G, like cellular connected uh, type situa situation, the generation one, right? Like 64 gigabyte, whatnot, 1,000 pound a piece or whatever it is here. Uh, first time I've ever seen one in my life, right? So here's this bag full, full of about 30, 40,000 pounds worth of equipment, which I'm... <laughs> which I was supposed to be, supposed to be take, taking over. Um, and he said to me, um, I want you to take this to Sweden. I want you to hand them out to the employees of the company. And I want you to tell them that this is the future of the company. Right? So very profound <laughs> vision that he got, because this, this here tablet device is perfect for our casual audiences. I believe that this is how people are going to play, you know, da, 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 right? That, you know, so that was crazy. Um, but what was even more crazy was he was giving me this to a guy that he's hardly met, uh, yeah. an employee which has, you know, second interview, not even working at the company. So, so fast forward, like four, four or five hours on the next day or whatever, I'm passing out. These, these iPads, these people like like Father Christmas, uh, <laughs> like look, look at me, like look at me, like um, you know who, who are you? And I'm like I don't know. <laughs> I just so I found that I found that um, 
completely crazy experience. Oh, by the way, on the on the elevator, he, he kind of smacks me on the on, on the rear end. I'm not sure if you can do that these days. And he said, by the way, uh, keep one for yourself. You know, just you just like you know, just the c- completely unique experience to you know where I come from in, in the agency. Just to have that freewheeling um, kind of kind of attitude to that 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 you know motivation to inspire uh you know the people uh, which were around him and to make those quick decisions as well as having that broader vision of hey this is don't know exactly how we're going to get there but this is the direction this is where the customer is heading this is where we're going to go um so i found that i found that particularly uh particularly powerful so anyway after the founders uh, you know i had a dinner with the founders he call, calls me up and he said okay so when you start, here are the five different things that I want you to do. And I'm like, Ricardo, you haven't, you haven't even offered me a drop. And he goes, what do you want? <laughs> I'll, I'll double your salary or something stupid like that. And, and I was like, well, okay, if you're going to do that. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess it, it wasn't some, I joined King not because uh, of gaming or, or or any big vision that I had or anything necessary about, about the company, but because you know, there was this real visionary um, entrepreneurial type spirit. Uh, and I found that very infectious from the first few, few meetings. I thought that would be uh, an amazing sort of career change. Um, so that's how I got into gaming, into King uh, in, in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now tell me a little bit about Ramp. Like, how did that kind of come about, and, and what sort of you know services are you offering to game studios these days? Uh, so Ramp came about um, largely down to obviously me from previous stories I've been telling about how powerful uh, forecasting can be and transforming it could be for the business, but also how uh, poor and how little attention that most. Uh, most uh, most companies and most gaming studios actually pay to it. Um, it's just so often, you know, when when you know budgets uh, or games don't meet, meet expectations, it wasn't necessarily down to the game; it was down to the poor forecasting. Um, so, uh, I guess ramp came from a personal struggle of you know I was staying late at night. Uh, you know, working on these spreadsheets, forecasting whole games, portfolios of games uh, uh, via cohort-based forecasting in spreadsheets, uh, very cumbersome to do uh, and do well. Uh, and I thought there must be a better way, way than this. Um, so effectively, RAMP is predictive analytics. We forecast um, uh, users and revenue, uh, primarily for, I guess, our target market would be FBA teams. Uh, within uh, gaming studios, it works outside of gaming too. But uh, we've obviously got um, quite a few studios that that, that we work with, um, and it does uh, user and revenue forecasting uh, as the primary thing for games as a whole. Then, uh, in addition to that, it does uh, ROAS uh, 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 LTV calculation, ROAS monitoring, and 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 validation. Um, very obviously, very important to do. Uh, as well as um, uh, helps you uh, find, you know, do scenario planning, okay? So what happens, for example, if we increase the monetization of our game by X or uh, the retention by Y after this point, or 
what happens if we increase our marketing spend um, in this, this way? A very quick way for you to go and you know, analyze these decisions uh, quickly, um, or at least far more quickly than, than, than what a spreadsheet uh, would allow. Um, so that's uh, you know rampant. It's, there's other features too, uh, hopefully that we're going to build in, which are very useful for um, gaming companies. Uh, one is um, a feature I call triage, which is you know far too often when you've got a live operating game, uh, the numbers will drop, uh, and everyone is going to ask you about that. <laughs> the numbers will go. People will go scurrying, right? So this is the thing. Shit, the numbers are dropped. So you send your best people, the heads of all the departments, on this big triage type exercise, and uh, you know, you, you, and ultimately, what it comes down to, like probably most of the time, is the forecast was wrong. wasn't Wasn't anything. We should have anticipated this. We should have expected this. And so, what this feature I'm hoping um, will do is say, okay, this is the date when things were going well. This is the date that wouldn't that wasn't. Here are the key pillars, you know, of retention monetization. And obviously, at the the life stages, it might be like day one, day day through D sixty five. Here's what changed versus the expectation between these two two dates, and what was the value? What was the value on that in terms of? Because that's the only way it becomes tangible. You can't say an X percent drop. You can't say it dropped from thirty percent day two to day X. What does that mean in terms of total business value? What I want to do is put a dollar figure. To it. So, hey, that means that we're going to miss our target by 2 million, 3 million, you know, by, by the end of the year. There's this issue here. This is the gap of expectation. This is the metric. And to enable you to very hone, it won't give you all the answers, in, at least not in this first incarnation, to hone in on that and understand the size of the impact of, of the issue which is at play. And that's if there is an issue, you know, if, if, if the forecasting is, is correct in the first place. This shouldn't be an issue uh, whatsoever. So, you know, for example, a lot of the times when I've been through in that situation, it's come down to seasonality, right? So, oh, numbers are down. Oh, well, it was a, it was a holiday in the US, right? You know, it's not here in the UK or in, in whatever. So you're not thinking about, oh, you know, panic stations, but actually it was a holiday. And, and so, well, actually numbers probably went up on that case, but maybe it was a sunny day or something where people... <laughs> didn't play the game and, and and so what our tool does or what our platform does is actually mimics that seasonality to start you know to actually forecast that properly in the first place um so that's pretty cool the other yeah. thing it allows you to do another cool feature that we're building in too is um about uh, live operations and, and events so um it's very a lot of the things that we struggle with i'm thinking back at early days of king what are the events that we're running what is the cadence that we should be doing it? What's the cost reward for doing those features? What priorities should we be, be doing them? What is the long-term impact on the game economy? All these sort of interesting questions. And so what we're building is a feature where you can basically just be tagging events, right? This has happened between this state. And you can have multiple events live. And what, what we can do is run machine learning on that, pass out you know, the sort of events, and then we can do the output of that will be two things. Number one, okay, this is the sort of value of running these events. But also two is if your game is very live op driven, then you should be mimicking that within your forecasting and, 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 and seasonality. And increasingly as gaming companies get better at this, they are. So you should be yep. intending to go, to go and do that. 
Um, so that's pretty cool. So effectively, it's taking this world of forecasting, all that stuff in the spreadsheets, which is very cumbersome to the point where people just don't do it, even though they should, to a world where it's connected always on uh, and is based in machine learning. Um, and having that sort of, I guess, crystal ball at your fingertips, uh, you know, can be really, really powerful. Um, yeah. Help you prioritize. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think that this is just like, I, I think this is a pretty serious problem because, you know, it, if you get your forecasting wrong, which I mean, you're literally just playing with numbers in a spreadsheet. Um, and if you get your forecasting wrong and you're spending millions of dollars of UA funds and your payback time is wrong by six months or maybe it's never going to get there or your LTV is wrong, like you could just lose all that money. So, I mean, it is a very, very risky you know thing to get wrong i think i mean ua is is obviously the biggest expense at any studio um, yeah. so i think spending it right is the important thing for, for studios to do yeah um, absolutely so the crime the crime is if you if you're over investing to the point where you're creating value destruction within that so it, it, when you're particularly today when studios are investing like six six you know to 12 18 months two-year payback Small variances can mean that the payback can go infinite. That's true value destruction. You'll never get that back. Why, why, do, you, why do you do that? Um, um, so that's criminal. That's negligent. There's no reason you should be, should be going and, and, and doing that. And then you've got the converse situation. If you're sitting on a really good title and you're not able to uh, justify, you know, mathematically to your CFO or, or CEO that you should be spending uh, more money on this, then that is, and, 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 and the game is not reaching its, its, its full potential and you're leaving money on the table because of that, that's equally as criminal. So, you know, finding that right, find that right level and having the tool sets to go and make those arguments is, you know, is really, really important. And that's what, that's what we provide. That's great. And I know you sort of talked about this a little bit, but do you guys do any sort of like ongoing monitoring of like your ROAs or CPAs or LTVs or something? Like if something I had predicted this and I thought it was here and suddenly, you know, numbers were tanking, obviously you might see that elsewhere, but. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we are, uh, you know, what, what we do do, but we're continuing to build in that platform is one of the important things is, is to constantly be reviewing your own work. Obviously, that's hard, right? So if I make a prediction two, two weeks ago that my LTV was going to be a dollar and, you know, all of a sudden I hit a ROAS because the LTV, I don't hit my ROAS numbers because the LTV prediction, you know, came in at, or the actuals came in at 80 cents or, or, or whatever. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty dangerous sort of stuff, particularly when you're, you're, you're spending, spending at scale. Um, so you should be constantly reviewing the accuracy of your own modeling and being able to explain if your ROAS is different to what you expect it to be or your payback is different, why? Was it my CPA has gone up more than expected? Was it because my LTV prediction is, has gone down? If my LTV prediction has gone down, why is that? Is it, is it basically, you know, has monetization dropped? Is this, is, you know... Is it because, because the retention curve has altered? All these dif different things, the ability to continually monitor and explain what's going on and, uh, over time is, is super important to do. But often, you know, as the you know, UA people, finance people the, who, are the, who are given the task to go do this, they're the last in line for development resources. They never get, the, get this. So they never get cool shit built for them. 
So, you know, what I realized is I had to go and build it myself. So, 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 so yeah, so uh, basically this is the tool that, you know, I'm building it for myself, but, you know, that no one else would build for me. I love um, it. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm curious, like, what was it like in the earlier days at King, like, right as, you know, let's say Candy Crush was launching, like, tell me about the, the UA environment, you know, back then. Yeah, so so I think, as I may have mentioned earlier, very different environment um, back in 2000, uh, 2000 and, and I think 12 is when, when Candy Crush launched. So obviously, number one, we had a run of the run of the, the the field when it came to the available inventory. There was no other application that really truly monetized on on the App Store, and therefore we had that first mover advantage there. Our paybacks, or we could afford to have paybacks, which were uh, super quick. Um, so that's one thing. I think the the landscape was very different in terms of uh, discoverability and virality. Um, so if you cast your mind back even further to the likes of um, when Zynga created Farmville, that was a game that was truly viral. You know, it was connected to the, via the Facebook platform. They, did, they would have spent very little on marketing to, at least to get it to, to where it was uh, initially. So it would have had a K factor, which was above one by definition, right? Um, when Candy Crush came along, we had a K factor that was, um, you know, I'm not sure if this is protected information, but, but it was about 0.7. So that means for every uh, user that we got uh, back in 2012, uh, we got an additional 2.3 for free. So that's massive. That's massive. So if you work that back in, which we did to what we could afford to pay for a user, you can understand how the environment is very different to where it is today. So what I'm seeing across a lot of different clients is um, when you, if you are, if you, if you don't have the benefit of a pre-existing IP, uh, you be lucky to get a free to pay ratio in your advertising, uh, like of, of uh, more than 10% organic, you know, organic, um, organic consisting of, you know, virality, uh, and, and basically mis misattribution usually. Um, but the, you know, and that's the reality today. You know, we used to have things like Open Graph on Facebook, which, which basically gave free inventory. We used to have the App Store. People used to go to them because people used to fill up, use that as a, a, a place in their, in their, to, to fill up their phones. Okay, what, what can I download? You know, nobody's doing that. The, you know, to the to the same. Well, I'm sure in absolute volumes they are, but relatively speaking, then they're, they're not. Um, uh, and then, so the the discoverability and virality component obviously is a much different landscape uh, to where to where we are today. And obviously, we've got none of the uh, problems that we have regarding IDFA and all that goodness, which has come in uh, quite quite recently. So very different um, marketing landscape um, from from where it is today, definitely. Interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. I had no idea it was like that back then. Um, oh, so, oh, and, and, and just the eCPMs, back to the first point, right? eCPMs have gone up, you know, obviously, I think, you know, 
at one stage I was looking at graphs as like that. It's like 70% year on year compounding for, 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 for whatever. So, so the ECPMs on advertising are so expensive, you know, and what the payback period, what I'm seeing, you know, in, in people that I talk to, the pay, all that's happened is that the paybacks have just pushed out and out and out um, to the point where it's ridiculous. It is truly ridiculous, the sort of paybacks that, that you know, uh, that the companies are actually um, paying it. And, and there's no logic sometimes behind why they're even doing that in the first place. Um, too seldom uh, companies are asking themselves why they're doing what they're doing. So, you know, some of the answers I get, uh, well, because that's what you need to be competitive. It's not a, that's not a real, real answer. You know, the, the, what the, the correct way to think about it is what is right for us and, 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 and for our, our business. And if spending less money and making things more, more, more efficient is the right thing to increase shareholder value and the long-term prospects of your game, that's what, that's what you, you should, should be doing. Um, rather than artificially uh, pumping those numbers. And I think people don't really think about that enough. And, and that's one of the things that we do do, or I work a lot on is helping people answer that question. Um, how much should we be spending? What's the right level, the optimum level of marketing business for us? Um, yeah. There's a lot of that related to like the profitability that you need to have at your studio so that you can afford salaries and hiring goals and you know, all those kind of things. Absolutely. So the way to think about it is... Um, there is decreasing efficiency with the more you spend. So the decreasing efficiency comes from two areas. The first is as, you know, obviously you've got increasing CPIs and therefore your cost per incremental is, go is going up uh, as you're spending more money. So it's becoming more expensive the more volume you're trying to get, that price volume curve relationship. The second is, as you increase your marketing spend, your uh, the way that the, the algorithms are work, working is that you're getting less and less warm users, uh, uh, and your the quality of those users or the metrics of those users are going down, and we call that uh, cohort cooling, which is effectively the, the opposite of the golden cohort effect, right? Right. Cohort cooling is is generated by two things: it is uh, the 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 uh, how far you have eaten into your total addressable market, how many more players have I got to get, but also the speed at which you're doing it. Uh, and that can degrade the quality. What you can do very early on, which is fundamental to all our modeling, is look at these, these, these two things and say, you can actually pick where, where the game's going to plateau, where it's going to peak out, because you can see some of that un those underlying trends in, in the data set for a lot of, a lot of these games. Um, so my point being is if you, it's all about that cost per increment. What's the incrementality? What's the impact on our overall revenue from moving from a 12 month to a, to a 16 month to a, to, you know, or a six, six months. And what is the opportunity cost for us of actually doing it? If we've got staff, which are underpaid, if we've got a high churn rate um, of, of, you know, within our studio, uh, you know, People are begging to, to get paid more or we need more people to, to, to build these amazing features to, to, to do this. What do you think is going to be better for the game, you know, in the, in the medium and, and, and longer term and even the shorter term in some in instances, you know, is if you can make it more efficient, then you are able, you've got the flexibility to make other 
decisions, just rather than running the ham, getting on that UA hamster while running that rat, rat race. And so, whereas when I was coming up, you know, in my, my formative UA youth, I was trying to encourage people to spend more by justifying that spend, saying you're going to make it back and you're going to make it back quickly. Now, what I'm doing for the most part is mostly the opposite of that, which is, wow, like, hey, you can, you can you know, reduce your marketing budget by half and your gross bookings are only going to reduce by 15, 20%. But you're going to be instantly profitable and or you can make these future investments and or da, da, da. And by the way, you also assume far less risk. Because when you're spending money, when you're putting that money out there, you know, and there's a long payback period, a lot of things can happen in the interim. So I'm going to give you a very specific example of, of, of this. In 2000 and, uh, shit, 2010, I'm going to call it 2010, we had, uh, so Bubble Witch Saga was one of the games. Uh, it was effectively and cynically cloned by uh, Zynga. Um, and uh, basically the, the player base of that game fell out pretty rapidly over the space of two or three weeks. Now, at that time, you know, the payback periods were, were on, for that game were, were, were very short. Uh, so, you know, the impact of that obviously wouldn't have financially crippled uh, a company or you wouldn't have wasted a bunch of money. But imagine if you were running at what they are today, a 12 or six month, um, uh, so, sorry, uh, you know, an 18 or two years or I've even heard companies go to, and yep. you're doing that way and you just invested millions of dollars, which you will never get get back that is that's crazy and that yeah. that's very real prospect that can happen so the the when you're putting it out there i think people are, often don't counter into the risks of competitive movements in between the time that you spend the money and when you're going to go and, and and make that money back on top of it's so much more difficult to forecast a you know, that, that cumulative revenue curve up to two years in the, in the future. So if you get that wrong, like marginally, like by fractions of percentage, that can push your payback out infinite, true value destruction. You're never going to make that, that, that money back. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and encouraging people to really think about, you know, making the right decisions for their studios, for their business, about what that optimum level, level of spend is going to be. Yeah. Do you have any, like, for, you know, maybe studio leaders that are thinking about it, like, do you have any general, like, you know, rules or processes of like, here's, here's where I typically think most studios should like maybe be for X, Y, Z reasons, or, you know, here's some things that you should be thinking through because I think a lot of it is just, we guys got to grow, 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 grow. Um, so the, there is nothing, Look, modeling some of this, this is why, you know, we've created uh, a platform for forecasting and, and modeling. Now, you don't even need to use something as sophisticated as what we've built. I hope you do. But at least try to do it. This is a mathematical game. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people just don't put in their, their homework. You should be able to construct a mathematically based argument of if we spend this much money, you know, this is what we think is gonna be the outcome. If we do that and, and factor in a diminishing return, even if you don't know exactly what it is, do it, try it. 
you know, like just put that diminishing return factor in and see what happens and see how that would impact your decision making. So the advice is not where will it be? It's like in advance of spending money, you should always, you know, UA budget, you should always have a, um, you should always have an idea of what's going to happen. It doesn't necessarily need to be right. Hopefully it's directly ac directionally accurate, but I just think that that's good governance. Um, so making sure that you have a good idea of what's going to happen before you actually go do it by putting in the homework, you know, in, uh, before, before that happens, I think is the primary advice um, that I'd like to give. And the other, the other one is, and that's not relating just to UA. I think I've been a, a, involved in a ton of soft launches um, over, 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 over my time. And I think the same kind of advice applies to that, right? So too often the targets that I guess, you know, okay, we're gonna create a game in X genre. Yeah, this is the sort of targets we're aiming for. But there's been no homework in terms of, okay, this is how big we think the, the game, game will be. This is the metrics that we need to get there to make it commercially viable. And the way to do that is ultimately to backtrack from, okay, you need to make the assumption you need to buy all your users. That fact, because discovery is dead. So that's fact. So you need to pay if you're in a genre of, you know, uh, you know, just say casual, you know, or puzzle, you know, a good game will be paying, you know, between 10 and $20 in the US for, for you know, on iOS, for example, right? Um, if you're not getting there, uh, you know, and look, maybe a bit of survival bias here, people, because, you know, <laughs> they're dealt with some big, big people. But, but if you're not getting there, if you can't make a logical argument how you're going to get to those numbers, then you do not have a commercially viable game. Um, and so you could do that from day dot before writing your first line of line of code. And so what invariably what, what happens, I find, is that, you know, we go, we put the work and we come out a soft launch and then we've got a, a certain set of, set, of, um, set of associated metrics. But then because the targets were ill-defined to begin with, um, then those sort of, uh, that, that game development process gets dragged out when it should be killed a lot earlier in the, in the cycle. Um, I've very rarely seen, you know, retention improve, you know, I don't know, like more than say 10, 20% out of soft launch. And I'm obviously not talking about long-term retention as you're building out the meta and everything else, <laughs> but, 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 you know, those initial numbers stick and I've never seen monetization. Once you get your monetization, by, you know, increased by more, I want to give that a broader range, more than like 50, 100%. So, so what I don't quite understand um, is how some of these games are um, allowed to continue in that soft launch period for as long as they are when there's so little likelihood of them actually succeeding and becoming um, commercially viable. And I think that just has to be a better way to fail faster than I think most, most, most of the, the gaming so, uh, so let I'm me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question here because there's so many companies that I know that are stuck in this soft launch hell right now and trying to figure out like, oh, like it's so close to being, you know, commercially viable or X, Y, Z. Um, you know, if, if you and I had to go start a game studio today, we've got a great game team, you know, all the artists, all the developers, we got all, all the people. Um, 
which isn't to say that's easy to do. I think that's pretty hard too. But, you know, we need to go and soft launch a game. And ideally, this is going to be a successful game. Like, how would you soft launch a game today? So, look, I mean, a lot of it isn't going to come as, as a su surprise in terms of the steps, uh, which is, you know, depending on your cat, look, some games have obviously has it easier than others. It's obviously, if you've got your core loop in place, it's obviously easier to do a puzzle game um, and get it out in one of the, um, the you know, the, the lower um, monetizing but higher volume uh, Southeast Asian countries to get a view of that view of that retention curve. The, one of the things that people need to understand, by the way, about that retention curve is that it doesn't differ significantly to retention curves anywhere else. So don't be like, oh, well, if only it was in the United States or Australia or anywhere else, like, you know, unless there is a mechanical problem, you know, like, okay, our CDN or, or so, there's something wrong with the game, you know, it's not, it's going to be marginally off or the, the other thing that can change it is IP. So uh, if it's a super strong IP that is not, um, you know, known. Uh, so like often Japan has crazy, you know, crazy outlier retention metrics for a lot of, a lot of games that, that I see because they, they, they've used a local IP, which is a lot, lot stronger in the market. But for the most part, if you've just got a, a new game without that IP, you know, that is going to be, you know, your attention go pretty, pretty much locked those, those metric metrics out the gate. So going through that, that geo lock soft launch process, um, it, you know, is good and spending as much time in that, in that lower cost environment as possible, because what, what I'm also seeing, and this isn't a newsflash is that it just to get out the gate, just to buy enough users to be data sufficient, to even get a view of that retention curve in the in the first place or that monetization is is really really difficult um you know super super expensive um what i would say is or where i'm coming in is i think once you've made it out of that and you do have a good view i think a lot of people drink their own kool-aid with the games and if only we did this if only we did that if only we did that but it's very hard once you've kind of set down that soft launch to make these huge strides you know, of more than 100%, like doubling entire metrics. And I think you've got to be more honest with yourself out that gate is, are we going to get there? So, so maintain the team size as small as possible for as long as possible, maintaining in those, those metrics for as long as possible before incurring uh, any costs. And, and then, you know, if you refer back to the plan that you just said, the advice number one, you know, we're not there yet. We've given it X months. We made the, this assumption, this assumption, this assumption about how these features were going to increase it by X. None of them panned out. What makes you think that idea six, seven, or eight in the rank is actually going to, going to do that as, as opposed to your, your first instinct? So killing the games sooner and moving on. And now a lot of smaller studios may not have that luxury. I understand. I understand that. But at the same time, um, spending longer, you know, and, and not making that, that very hard decision to, to put a game down or to, to sunset it, I think is, is very costly, not, not just for smaller studios, but, but larger ones. I mean, can you, Tom, can you, can you think of too many which were terrible soft launches or even terrible launches that have turned into world beaters? I think Coinmaster is the class example of something which was in the market for a very long time and then had an exponential uh, growth curve. Um, 
Do you know any off the top of your head? Off the top of my head, no. Do you have a community? Right in, right. I want to know. <laughs> I want examples. I want examples of, of games that have been in soft launch, you know, that are out that were terrible, or, or even if they're just internal ones that, that have managed to be turned around. I think it, it happens too, too infrequently. Um, so anyway, um, have I actually answered a question in all this? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure um, advice. Go, go through, obviously go through those steps. Um, kill them sooner, but backtrack it. Always backtrack it from the assumption that you need to pay because you cannot rely on discovery. You cannot rely on, on virality. It doesn't really exist before unless you get ex extremely lucky. So in your business modeling, you can't assume that. Uh, or at least not in a sustainable way. Even if you do get a big viral hit or, you know, you get an app feature, relying on app features is not a sustainable business model. You get that, then what happens? Yeah. How is that going to help you? And too, you know, that was even advice from three or four years ago when they were big, which is, you know, you get developers, which whole mindset was about chasing those app store features, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, or trying to game the system or whatnot. And that's what they spent their time doing rather than doing something which was sustainable and repeatable. Uh, so. Uh, do you see, like, I know some people have uh, different processes for how they come up with game ideas and validate them. So, you know, some are like, give me 30 seconds of real gameplay and I want to get that as an ad on Facebook as soon as possible to see like, what's the CPI? Like, do you find that those kinds of things are successful? I, I know historically, like usually once you get your CPI, it only goes up from there um, as you like, you know, yeah. get past your golden cohort. And so, so I'm, I'm curious, like what your take is on, on validating game ideas and stuff. Before, yeah. I, I think, I think that should be part of the green light process as part of the validation of any playbook, right. That, that, that you have, I think that's one of the things. I don't think it's the be all and end all of, of things because, uh, we, and here's a hot tip. Here's what, where this can fall, fall, this method can fall down. Rule number one is different things happen at, sc at scale as opposed to, to smaller, right? So the tangible example of that is when we used to do similar testing uh, at King back in the day. Um, and what we would find, because the algorithms at small would provide very different response rates. Okay, super high. This is the creative. This is the theme. We're going to run with this or whatnot. But then what might happen is you've gone and created something that you've appealed to a, a, a very niche, rabid fan base with very high metrics. And then what happens when you scale that, by definition, you need to become more, more broadly appealing. So, you know, like, so actually using the same creative when you actually push go uh, might not be the, or, or theme might, might not be the best to do. So I think it's, it's something which is directional, but I don't think that it is a very good, and this is coming from marketing. Obviously, I want good CPIs. I want good themes, you know. Like, but but I don't think that's a very good way of game making per se. Is to think solely marketing, or well, always think marketing first, but solely UA first. I think that's one validation with it within the list. Um, I think you know increasingly, you know, um, there's 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 two two ways to do it. Either you're creating something which is truly unique and is standing out. And so you've got a core um, 
you know, core gameplay loop or there's something unique about your game which makes it stand out above the crowd. And it doesn't necessarily think, I mean, tactile, brilliant. Um, if you're familiar with tactile and the, the way that they've used, they use narrative and the way that that threaded through um, some of, some of the, 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 the UA. Um, so that's one way of doing it, finding that. What is our USP? What are we, what are we doing? What makes us special? So that it's a sustainable uh, thing, thing, thing going for it. For the other way is, I think, more what I like to call op optimizers. So some people are just so in tune with these features. Uh, I could do that feature better. I could, you know, I understand that that feature is the key thing that increases this metric and therefore I'm going to take this from here. Da, da, da. But you need to be really good. You need to have really good product people to do that. I think um, Dream um, is a really good example. Dream Games is a really good example of, you know, just some hardcore product focused people, just geniuses um, that, you know, nothing they do is 100% pay, you know, but they do it best and more polished and more refined and, and they've cobbled it together with world-class live ops and, and, and things like this, then, you know, I think they're a good example of, of that, that sort of mentality. But if you're stuck in the middle of those two things, you know, then, then you're, <laughs> you're in no man's land, right? <laughs> so so you're, just, you're, just, you're just vanilla uh, and there's no reason to play. Um, so, so I think it's, it's like choose your own adventure there. <laughs> That's how I think about it. Makes sense. Um, cool. Well, I know we're getting shy on time here. Um, I'm curious, just maybe like final question. Um, what sort of challenges do you see, uh, facing games today from a UA perspective? Um, and, and do you have any, you know, good insights on how studios should be thinking about, uh, taking those on today? Yeah, sure. So obviously just the immediate challenges, which I'm not going to go into, you know, everyone would have spoken about IDFA um, to, to death. Attribution will continue to be an issue. Um, you know, I could do a whole podcast about how angry I am uh, about Apple, uh, about this way that that was handled and how angry I am, at, at, frankly, at all developers for not um, having a more united front to be able to negotiate, you know, um, uh, I, I just don't understand how we managed to, you know, collectively uh, allow, you know, a subpar solution um, thrust upon us in that manner. Um, I think everyone was just too scared. Keep your heads down, you know, she'll be, she'll be right. And ultimately, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't. Um, and and um, I, I would like to think that the developers uh, as an industry have, have taken some lessons from that. And this isn't about being hostile or, or, or anything like that. It's just like, how do we collectively communicate these concerns that we have about, you know, things that we rely on about how we're going to grow into the future, you know, in a more effective and constructive and visible manner. Um, and really frustrated about that whole thing, you know, from a personal, professional, uh, professional, professional standpoint, you don't want to go, you know, I don't want to spend the next two or three years of my life solving issues, which were previously solved. <laughs> you know, trying to crack attribution. How annoying is that? Rather than pushing things yeah. forward. You know, I mean, imagine my, my, what, what my life would be. Thankfully, I'm going to leave that to smarter people than, 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 than myself to, to try and crack. But, but that annoys me. So IDFA, rising ACPMs. Um, how do we, uh, how do we, um, how do we, you know, address that now? And I think, you know, 
the in, whereas I was very anti IP coming up, survival bias, uh, you know, Candy Crush. We don't. It was a it was a new IP. We've obviously got more money to play with. I think increasingly having that that base to build from, if you have the right contractual arrangement in place with the IP owner, so that you can continue to spend on UA and there's a healthy relationship with the partner. And there's been many examples of of a more healthy relationship. I think Scopely's probably got uh, probably got quite quite a, quite a few. I think um, from their heritage. Um, whereas that's not the case always. Um, understand that you need it's a perpetual UA machine, and you need to continue that, and you're going to share that that cost. I think is is in getting that right is is, is important. So that's one way to kind of um, get around that. Um, uh, I think the you know understanding so you know understanding that the power of power of okay uh, of, of networks so. Um, actually, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna switch up here. I'm gonna go here. Are my love it, love it. <laughs> gonna written down. Here's my top. These are my top ten or top seven tips. Let's call it seven. I'll stop at seven. Stop. Top seven right. tips. Love tips it. this, right? Okay. Number one, uh, get the right people in place. So, you know, performance marketing, by definition, is a process of test, uh, learn, uh, and refine. And to do that well, you need people with natural curiosity because it's in the process. It's like, you know, test and learn, like test, 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 <laughs> test. And, and you know, there's somehow like there just isn't natural. You know, this is what the numbers say. It didn't work, you know. And that sort of you need to be constantly have this perpetual attitude of un overturning stones. Um, obviously, some people are limited by their, you know, their, their game or the product they're working with in terms of the yield that that's creating or whatnot, but always that, that healthy appetite to, to learn. You need people which understand nuance and don't speak in absolute certainties uh, regarding their situation because what will apply elsewhere may not, not apply, apply to you. What applies at a small scale does not apply to a, to a, to a, to a large scale. Um, and uh, so you need people which understand this. You know, not, there's not one right way. It's we're going to test this and does it apply, apply to us? And we're going to test it rigorously, does it apply to us? You need people that understand what good looks like. So most people in marketing have come up from an agency and they're trained to spin. And there's nothing more damaging than uh, post-justifying bad performance, right? Mm -hmm. And saying somehow gaslighting and saying it was good. So marketers need to know what the goods goods look like if they're not writing their own if they're not the targets aren't given to them properly that's often half the, half the problem but but post justifying it is very 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 uh very damaging and you need to make it clear and there needs to be an environment of trust created within the ua people that hey it's okay not to hit your volumes just don't waste my money right that that Makes there sense. needs to be the mantra right uh and and so good companies all the great UA companies, you can tell when a, uh, there's a well old machine because their ROAS targets will remain, or, or payback period rather, will remain entirely constant in any situation because they're constantly adjusting up and down um, to, to that situation. That's a well oiled uh, UA, uh, UA enterprise. And I think in terms of hiring, I think a lot of people can say, oh yeah, I can manage a Facebook campaign. I can do this, I can do, I can do that. But the question is, have they done it at scale? 
right? Not obviously not everybody in the team needs to have done that. You obviously need juniors and you need a hierarchy of people which are learning and, and whatnot. But very thing, it's a very different situation if you're in the gutter uh, to to when you're consistently spending because you're trying to hack your way out of something at a lower level. And often those sort of strategies aren't sustainable as when you've got this, this machine which is up and running and you're constantly spending um, to, to certain targets. So that was number one, get the right people in place. You're going to have two hours of content on them. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is great. Number, number two uh, is, you know, set your strategic objectives up front. I'm talking about the high level stuff. So let's have a conversation about brand, right? Like you'd be surprised at how many of the gaming studios don't even have like a brand playbook, you know, like, okay, this is our ident. You know, this is how we speak to consumers, the tone of voice, um, even broad things like this is how we think about, you know, are we willing to uh, invest in brand because, it's a, you know, in terms of media, short term, long term, how much? What are the objectives for those? If you do spend media money for brand objectives, what are the objectives of that? It's not just brand money. It needs, you know, it doesn't go in a separate bucket, which is unaccountable. What are the specific metrics? And they can be longer term, they can be softer, but what are you trying to hit so that, so that they're, they're held accountable for, for those, 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 those that's, that's spent? Yeah. In terms of UA, uh, in terms of UA, um, you know, what is the right payback period for your organization? We've talked about that before. Uh, what is your appetite for risk? You know, what if it, it goes wrong? You know, do we know our price volume curve? What happens to our quality scale? So the sort of stuff that I talked about before. So even before you get into, you know, these sort of lower level stuff, you know, having those discussions up front and center so that you've set the expectation. Uh, number three, be agnostic with your marketing spend. So you always invest to maximize return. It seems simple, but you'd be amazed at how many, how many different um, companies, you know, not just game, gaming don't do this. So, so basically, hey, you know, a lot of the, the classic one is, oh, well, we're only going to invest in US because they've got higher monetization, monetizing users, which is just, you know, mind-bogglingly silly when, because if you think that the more you spend within a certain segment, you know, the more less efficient it is, so if you've got a fixed marketing budget, you should be distributing that across evenly across, you know, across ge geographies. You should be splitting it across, uh, uh, you know, networks. You, sh you should be splitting across, you know, and everything's to the same parameter. Doesn't mean that, hey, we can't have a multifaceted marketing campaign with different, uh, different uh, things running and that they, I'm not saying that they don't work, work better in, in concert. I'm just saying you don't make excuses, arbitrary excuses to favor one thing over, over another. Um, number four, uh, set good targets. So what a CPA target, I like to work in terms of CPA targets rather than ROAS targets. A CPA should re represent what that customer is worth to you as a company, dollar in, dollar out. So that means making sure that you capture as much of that value as possible. So where does the value come from? It comes from in-app purchases, it comes from ad revenue, it comes from upsell from merchandising, it comes from cross-sell to other games, it comes from virality. You need to convert that to a figure if you're doing this properly, which is a dollar in, dollar out situation as much as you possibly can. It's hard, but you need to do it 
or at least think about it to do some of these correctly because either you're over investing or you're under investing one of the two two situations and you want to get get it get it spot spot on uh number five yeah number five uh robust test and learn uh you should be constantly seeking to uh, get new new partners on on, on the plan um a lot of the things that is is okay well uh, you know classic one for new studios is we're going to do facebook and google and we're going to stop there because they're 80 percent of the market we're going to just concentrate on those schools because we've got limited manpower yada yada i mean if that were true then you'd be missing out on unity and bungle and all these other networks which which comprise the majority of gaming um different genres work differently across the, the other ones so you should be testing uh and learning and that extends to offline methods as well so uh uh, you know, back in the day at King, we were spending 100, 100 million plus a year just on TV alone. Now, I'm not sure if that's possible to do um, in, in, in this day and age, obviously, you know, perfect storm uh, back back then. Uh, but the offline media works. There is no brand that's been built from better ads alone. Uh, so uh, that, you know, constantly testing those sort of things and, uh the, um, so we've got IP-driven TV is, I think, you know, my advice would be if you want to see, if you want a new kind of uh, like where people are going to grow, if you manage to crack that, because we've got a whole industry which has moved from like kind of offline and it started to move online, that's mm -hmm. unknown. Is it a low eCPM? So the whole thing's starting again. That's the way to think about it. There's a platform shift. So if you can be constantly doing that and trying to crack that, and make that scalable for you. That is something which is scalable and systemic going forward because that inventory is there and it's only going to increase going forward. So if you can make that work for you, um, that's something that, that you should, should, should be doing. Um, but whatever you do, make sure it's scalable and repeatable. For example, uh, influencers, I, you know, not a huge fan, um, you know, maybe a bit of survival bias because I haven't seen excellent examples of, that truly be held to account. But I just don't see it as properly, it could have scale, no doubt, but is it repeatable? Are we going to, you know, be able to get that up and running and repeat it for the next campaign? And if it works the next time and maybe you've got influence and maybe they want more money and yada, yada, yada. So I'm not saying it's not part of the mix, but would it be where I'm going to spend my time, uh, you know, uh, focusing on when I've got so many hours in the day? Probably not. Um, and I think that, that maybe the last one just to, to, to finish off on is, um, you know, and it probably is obvious these days, but a robust creative pipeline, particularly for when it comes to performance marketing, is just so important, more important than ever. It used to be when I was coming through that the way you spent the money, how you spent it, and the networks and who was spending it would be the largest of the difference of, of you know, whether your campaigns were working or difference between good and bad you know as people have got better as people have got more skilled at their at their jobs um as the uh, algorithms do much of the heavy lifting within the campaigns themselves a lot of that kind of competitive advantage you have by being really good at performance marketing is eroded and what's left you know the competitive advantage comes from you know your creative both you know the quality of it the volume of it and the messaging within it. Um, so making sure that moving from a, a place where you're doing 
individual briefs to creative agencies and they're coming back and they've got one set of creative and you just need this pipeline of constant, you know, I need 100 creative a month and three themes. And, and, and so there's this persistent pipeline and a military style structure of getting those in and having those available um, to stop the degradation in the CTRs and CTIs that, 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 that occur um, from leaving the, the, the creative there uh, uh, too long, making sure that you're utilizing AI as much as possible and these, AI, these new AI solutions which are coming up um, as part of that um, as well. And the last thing on creative, I think, is, is, is understanding the, the quality investment trade-off. So, um, you know, there comes a time that where uh, if you are undervesting in your creative um, and you're spending it, let me put it another way, it's far easier to push, push a button and spend another million, another two million by pressing a button and changing your bids uh, than it is to do another creative and uh, that could increase performance by the same amount. And uh, we, it's too, all too often that's what tends to happen is we, we spend more money inefficiently rather than actually getting the hard yards in and getting that, that, that create, creative in and spending more money and more quality increase the, the quality. So there's cost trade-offs at different levels of spend. So you know, 10,000, if just say you're creating a TV ad, let's make it real simple, 10,000, creating a TV ad, you can do it for 10,000 bucks. And that might be good if you've got 100,000, spending 100,000, 150,000 in media. Um, but at a certain point, if you start to spend 3 million or whatnot, it's the same same thing that, that getting that incremental, spend that incremental bit on creative budget, you know, ultimately makes sense because you're boosting it across uh, you know, a much larger uh, marketing budget or you're deploying it across much. So I understand that cost quality trade-off. And I think um, the poor marketing and the poor branding people, often the poor cousins uh, in the marketing department too often, I think in this day and age, because it's just, so, I think it's just so much easier to understand, you know, and measure the, the you know, the, the UA spent and it's in a system, you know? And, and so, as much as possible, you know, try to make that up the justification that, 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 that branding as a whole and, and that, 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 you know, quality, creative and a systematic, robust pipeline is worth investing in. And so I think that's the last, the last point. Final, final question there. Uh, and you hit on a good point. You know, it's easier to rely on the AI solutions or whatnot than like making new creative. Do you know or do you have any way to know like when a creative is maybe toward the end of its life or needs a replacement coming up or you need to scale it back? Yeah, so that it's it's interesting. So I'm obviously not in the interfaces myself um, these these days. So I probably would need to bring in uh, some, of, some of these guys and, and to speak to the more specific points, but um, guys and girls. Uh, but the, um, the, the way that say, take Facebook, for example, um, what, we tend to do is, um, or, you know, and a lot of people do different things. So a lot of people have test buckets where they're like, uh, it's a test account and we're doing this. Um, we find there's, if you have one campaign, which is, is your, just call, call it your, your um, stable campaign that you're running, your business as usual one that you spend most of the money from, we find that 
often weird things happen if you carve off a little shitty one and you're you know and you're stopping and starting and you're putting that in a separate bucket and measuring that and getting the best results out of that often mm. is the best so i'm very much still a survival of the fittest type person which is you know chuck it in chuck creators in with the the existing creative and see if they can swim so i don't think there's any right answer in terms of when you should take it down i think the in terms of in terms of an absolute time the right answer is when you got something better so that's why, that's why your robust pipeline needs to be in there so you're just constantly feeding in um you know and trick trickle feeding your best creatives into that master group seeing what survives and, and, and what and what doesn't um you know and that's very high level obviously it's different for different different networks or whatnot but that's kind of how i uh, it's still my favorite 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 method that's great i love it well angus it, it, um, if people do have any questions uh after this episode is there a good way for them to get in contact with you yeah, absolutely. Um, just just search me up on uh, LinkedIn, Angus L O V I W T uh, from Ramp Growth. Um, message me on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm sure that uh, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm sure I can get back to you. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us.